The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, record. And it's time. And, and we're what? It is Monday, May 16th, 5.01 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Dan Byman back on the show, which is always a joy if 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 today is for very sad reasons and to discuss something very heavy. Um, but Ben, you wanted to do the intro. For yeah, Dan. I want to do the introduction to Dan because over uh, on Friday evening uh, last week or on Wednesday evening, uh, I hosted, uh, along with my, uh, excellent wife, a book party for Dan and this book. And it we, was on Monday. It was on Monday. All right. It was a week ago. <laughs> you know, dates are all the same. And when Dan spoke, he talked about how this movement that we've always thought of as domestic terrorism has internationalized and, uh, you know, his specific example was that people are uh, drawing inspiration from a, you know, from a Norwegian uh, assault from a few years ago and from a New Zealand uh, uh, manifesto. And as if to like illustrate the point uh, over the weekend, somebody uh, uh, did exactly that um, and specifically uh, uh, quoted large portions of the New Zealand manifesto and live streamed it like the New Zealand guy. Um, and uh, so I just thought it was an illustration, an interesting illustration of some of the themes that Dan is uh, working with in, in the book. Uh, and it was fresh on my mind when I read the news about, about uh, Buffalo uh, because it is the internationalization of precisely the kind of white supremacist stuff that we used to think of as a kind of local sort of indigenous American uh, phenomenon. Um, uh, I suppose this guy is kind of that, but he's also taking inspiration from a lot of other things. All of which is to say that wherever you are in the world, you may think you're allowed to have fun, but you're not anymore because there are white supremacists coming to get you. And uh, to talk about it with us is Dan Byman, author of Spreading Hate, which uh, could not be uh, better timed, unfortunately. Um, Dan, welcome back to the show. Yeah, Dan. Uh, thank you very much for having me back. Uh, so we were chatting before in the in the pregame show, just kind of about um, you know uh, everything that Ben just said to kind of lead into this, but also just kind of um, you know you I think you had kind of a response to Ben's kind of intro. Do you see this as much as Ben does, and like kind of this way of like proving your thesis, so to speak, or do you think that there are differences? What was kind of your take um, as this news broke on Saturday? Unfortunately, this particular shooting seems kind of right up the middle of the alley for white supremacist violence in the last seven or eight years. It's against uh, the black community, kind of the community that suffered most in the United States from white supremacists. Yet, as Ben mentioned, the shooter is referencing, you know, the Great Replacement themes that come from around the world and inspired by the New Zealand attacker. He's using a method that we saw kind of first become super popular in Norway and then spread to New Zealand, which is a guy kind of declares himself to be a commando, gets really excited about guns and body armor and goes in guns blazing, you know, in, against innocent defenseless people. So hardly a daring commando, uh, but has a certain method that we're seeing, you know, kind of nor um, 
the usual method for this community. Um, so this one checks a lot of boxes. And Kate, as you know better than I, he also does the obligatory manifesto uh, and um, tries to live stream this on Twitch. And you know, for bonus points, he throws in a personal diary that kind of gives us a blow by blow of his radicalization. So there are a lot of things that we've seen different white supremacist attackers do in recent years, and he seems to be hitting all the buttons. Now, I, I forgot to mention in my internationalization discussion, the uh, great replacement theory is originally French, right? Um, yeah, and I mean, let's be clear, the idea that whites are under threat and people are seeking to water down the white race, you know, that's a very old idea. And, you know, it shows up in a lot of different countries in a lot of different contexts. So the Great Replacement, it gets a lot of attention and, you know, reasonably so. But it's not as if, you know, it, when the French um, kind of thinker uh, puts this forward, or Renaud uh, Camus, he is coming up with an idea that no one has ever thought of before. You know, you can go back 30, 40, 50 years and see elements of this. And, you know, people talking about America becoming, you know, an evil nation of brown people and Catholics, mongrel, or whatever it is. Mongrel yeah. uh, mixing of pot. the races. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, one of the things that, and, and I've done a few interviews and some TV, and I'm unfortunately hope like doing more, but um, <laughs> because I, because um, people want to talk about what the internet did to contribute to this. But one of the things that's really interesting to me is that so far the questions have actually not focused on the term white supremacy, Dan. Um, a lot of the reporters who've come to me are talking about this as hate speech. And this is a moment mm -hmm. of like unchecked hate speech online tipping over into the real world. And I kind of, I don't know how to like disambiguate or kind of like add some granularity to that notion that this is not just hate speech and this is not just hateful ideas, but this is like extremism fomenting online and finding community and also finding some type of like martyrdom that they're able to like put out there because they can live stream this thing. It's just hate speech doesn't seem the way, like the right way to characterize it. Do you agree with that? Or like, am I like, you know, do you think I'm just trying to find a distinction? No, not at all. I, I would kind of, I would say there are couple of the hundred questions, but I'll put out kind of two big questions. One is about the shooter, what he was up to, who he was talking to, the ideas that inspired him. And that's clearly to me in the white supremacist terrorism realm. And there are a number of words we can use, but hate speech doesn't remotely do justice to that. Um, but the other is the kind of range of broader ideas that are, you know, echoing the Great Replacement um, philosophy, you know, the anti-immigrant sentiment, the kind of casual racism, the sorts of things that came up in the New York Times analysis of Tucker Carlson's show. And there we can talk about how, um, you know, at times, you know, you can call it hate speech, at times just pure racism online that isn't intended um, for violence can, you know, understandably lead someone in that fringe 1% to think of himself as a hero, right? If you're saying, look, we're under attack, Right. You say it again and again and again. It's not surprising that some chucklehead is going to say, well, I'm going to fight back. And then people who say who have been saying we're under attack can't exactly say, oh, I never thought anyone would listen to me or respond to what I said. Yeah. So when you look at this situation, um, uh, it's not clear to me as much as we all like to hate the social media platforms that in this narrow instance there's much else that any of them could have done can we start there is there a social media failure um kate why don't you go ahead on this because i know you've well we were talking about this before i think we have the same initial assessment which was that your your take was like and i'm a little shocked because um Siva, who like is my favorite person, Siva Benathian, who is like one of my favorite people to kind of disagree with about this was kind of like, well, if you wrote like, why doesn't, why don't the people at the platforms read what you wrote on the Christchurch shooting? Because maybe then this wouldn't have happened again. And I'm just like, it took them like, as you, you talked about just a few minutes to take this down on Twitch. That's kind of in, like an insanely fast response time. It's not really clear to me that like all like, there's also, and you talk about this in your book, that there was a rise in these types of crimes 
with the with the with the boom in live television and and these and like these kinds of moments and of course we're seeing this more at scale now um but like i i just like i just i'm really kind of sick of like being like well government can should do something platform should do something and i'm like isn't this kind of an indictment of how terrible people are to each other and like the amount that and like i'm not trying to say that there shouldn't be some type of consequence or that there shouldn't be attempts to try to like finesse this but like at the same like especially around gun control um but like why is it that we're turning to platforms to turn off like freedom like free i just don't get it like i just don't understand like if this okay, guy's camera okay, so, hadn't operated correctly like he would never have known so, and like so, so hang on a second happened. i want to distinguish between two platform activities here this is that are point. different yes. so one is handling him trying to upload live video you know benjamin wittis is killing people right you know and here's some video right i i think they did a really good job with that but the other is benjamin wittis is radicalizing in groups that you're hosting and it's less i mean it it does still feel to me like there are a lot of nether regions of the internet where you can go across all these platforms to radicalize and they're not super picky about you know what kind of groups you form on a lot of these sites is that right or or have they made real progress in this space? No, you you raise a really good point. And actually, I want to kind of kick this to Dan because I I'm curious what his impulse is as to how much this is becoming real world violence because people have an outlet to project it and to create an entire moment for it and to memorialize it and become these it's insane kind of martyrs and how much of it is the finding each other becoming radicalized and moving towards extremism? Um, I, so I could take the, the cheap answer and say both. Um, but you know, to go to Ben's broad point initially, yeah, there are lots of pockets um, where we're seeing lots of people be nasty and kind of go back and forth and become nastier. And sometimes it's Facebook groups, right? Sometimes it's not the you know kind of chance of the world that are the little cesspools, but it's these big platforms. Um, you know, there's a lot on YouTube that's quite disturbing, right? There are, there are major platforms that certainly could do significantly better on this. Um, but then I do think, you know, if the analog I often use is school shootings, where, um, you know, we've had school shootings, unfortunately, in the United States for many years. But Columbine kind of changed what a school shooting was if you know if you say there's been a school shooting we can kind of close our eyes and imagine it and it's probably going to look something like columbine in many ways um and what has happened with the internet is we have uh we can call it a meme if we want but we have uh, some sort of model for action that people are embracing and uh from it they they get kind of self-worth and they get an audience that's going to admire them just as it admired people before um, and, but to go to, um, you know, Kate's point, you know, the internet brings people together, right? And it brings people together to discuss knitting and to discuss Joe Biden's performance and to discuss how horrible the following minority groups are, right? And all those things are the same in a way, but it used to be that, you know, for racists to kind of even read propaganda was often quite difficult. You know, I had to find some newsletter that, you know, someone on the fringe had distributed around uh, his or her neighborhood. Um, now it's it's pretty darn easy, unfortunately. Well, I just want to say to all the people out there who are considering doing a school shooting, you're not going to be famous. You're actually I don't, I don't actually know the name of the man in Buffalo. You're actually going to be a chump. It's uh, it's been done. Think of something new. Uh, you ben, know, Dylan Klebold. Dylan no, seriously, seriously, Kate. Name me after Dylan Klebold and what's his name at Columbine, a single school shooter. No, I know we got better at like, but this is, but this no, you, is a but little. You can't, you can't do it because in but fact, I don't know that I want you to say do better. I feel like that's no, no. Choose, choose something else. We 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 remember the first people who do something. You know, 
Put your imagination to it. Don't Friends. just do what somebody. Friends. I'm trying to save kids' lives here. Yeah, are you? Yeah, you're you're right. Right. You might just be trying to kill someone else, right? Yes, exactly, Ben. I don't really think that save the kids. Um, okay, but I I really do want to to a really to a serious point though. I I do want to say something. So like, I think that I think that the point is really. Um, I think that the point is excellent. That this is like the media has gotten better at how they they talk about these things at like at not. Um, using the people's names that there's like less and less kind of thing. And th this is like all great, but I think that there's also like what Dan, like I, I, I have to say, like it feels as if like there is some type of, you know, like that it's not just the fact that people are extremists. It feels like they get to be heroes, even if it's just among as they're remembered in their own small extremist communities and whether or not we know their names they think that like the the people that matter most to them are going to know their names and, know who they and, are. And, and that's probably right and and in a in a way that sort of thing is true for most of us right which is we care tremendously you know most of us not about our kind of broad reputation but our reputation among the people who we hang out with right it'd be very upsetting if our our friends and colleagues thought poorly of us and, you know, in this kind of nasty little world, they have, you know, people they would consider acquaintances and friends. And so I do think they, they get self-worth from it. And it's, you know, it's deeply disturbing as a result. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, the kind of online shift in this, right? Because online bonds are usually not particularly strong, right? Um, and so, you know, there are some kind of, you know, I, I've, my wife sometimes says hearing me talk about terrorism is like having a golden doodle talk about terrorism because I often <laughs> emphasize the the good part of what's happening in the world. So let me say one thing I'll, um, on the right side, right, which is we've seen the decline of the skinhead movement. And that was an exceptionally violent movement. Um, and But it was low-key violence, right? These guys weren't going to a supermarket and shooting you know, a bunch of people. No, they, they were, were getting drunk. me on the streets of Stockholm. Yeah, they were getting drunk at a local pub and finding the first person who they thought they was right to beat up, right? Yep. And that could be a random person. It could be, you know, often tended to be someone with darker skin. And so it's a lot of low-level violence. And the online shift actually really hurt this movement, right? So there could be good things about this as well, but appropriately we focus on the bad stuff. And unfortunately, there's a lot of bad stuff. Do you think that the area that these, like if we're talking about Twitch doing better at getting this down, why do you think that there's, there does seem to be, there does seem to be an interesting angle at the, of this, which is that, is this happening more often or are we hearing about it more often because of social media? So how do we know, like whether, you know, whether or not there are more hate crimes happening or, or more white supremacist events happening or whether or not someone is doing something like like at a more extreme level or publicizing it more or it's getting more take up by social media so you know as we all know the problem with the social media is that you know any bias you have any fear you have is confirmed because you know there are 330 million americans right so i can find proof of racism or anti-semitism every second if i want um but again, I'm going to go to some good news before the bad news, right? So, you know, 60, 70 years ago, right, in the United States, you know, racism was encoded deeply in law and in social custom, right? So you didn't need a lot of violence if your goal was to make sure that minority communities were subordinate, if your goal was to prevent intermarriage, you know, so you can go to courts or at the very least, very strong social pressure. And, you know, there were over 10,000 sundown towns in the United States where, you know, Black Americans were not you know, were prohibited from entering um, after sundown, right? I mean, so like staggering levels of structural racism. Um, you know, the good news is, in my view, at least we moved away from that pretty decisively. Um, and we have a lot of low-level violence. And there it's extremely hard to tell because we don't collect data consistently. And some of the places we are least likely to collect data have the biggest problems. And, you know, to go internationally for a minute, uh, I talked to someone at an NGO in Poland, right? And he was talking me through this and he was talking about how much, um, you know, kind of violence and anti-Semitism and anti-Islamic uh, sentiment is expressed in Poland. But he said, you know, we don't really collect that. 
know, in contrast, the UK, he said, does an excellent job collecting iron. So you could look at statistics and say, boy, the UK is horrible and Poland's great. You know, if you're a Muslim, you should definitely go to Poland, not the UK, right? And that's just, you know, disastrously wrong. And so this collection issue to me is a really big one. But the one thing that has certainly changed, and obviously for the worse, is we're seeing high profile mass casualty white supremacist terrorism in a way that was less true in the past. And we saw, again, we saw a lot of violence and a lot of day-to-day -day violence and um, a lot of killing and a lot of lynching, right? But it wasn't the kind of mass shooting thing. And, you know, the Timothy McVeigh, um, you know, in some ways marked a turning point and there's, one can call him anti-government, one can call him white supremacist, there's elements of both to what he did. Um, but this is a real shift from violence in the past which was much more kind of day-to-day -day violence and much less high-profile dramatic violence, which we're seeing much more recently. Do you think that there is, I mean, there's a gun conversation here. There's a platform conversation here. Um, and there is a how much do we care conversation here, both on the mass shooting side and on the white supremacy side. But is there low-hanging fruit that, you know, you could implement as a policy matter and reduce the prevalence of these events? So let me, let me start by saying uh, the last major white supremacist attack in the United States was in 2019, right? So we've seen, you know, you have to think of these attacks as kind of happening, you know, I don't want to say randomly, but many have a chance of failure. And so we'll see some years where there are, you know, multiple attacks and some years where there are zero. Well, so and just to, to use this as a pointed example of that, the New York Times is now reporting that he planned a second attack. Right. And so the first comes off, the second does not. Uh, I suppose you could say that's a policy success. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could have been worse. Let's let's put it that way. As horrible as you know, as the attacks were, um, and so it's 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 always hard to tell, you know, based on a single attack, are are things getting worse, or are things getting better? But in terms of low hanging fruit, um, you know, there are kind of basic things I've got laws to me about people with, um, you know, backgrounds that are. Um, you know, investigate in terms of mental competence. I mean, one real question about this person was, you know, going back to our school shooting discussion, you know, was this person going to kill a bunch of people? He just needed some reason to do so. And it could have been, you know, he had a job where he was going to hate his boss and go in and kill five people there. Um, he was going to do it to an ex-girlfriend and her family and, or he was going to do it to a school. And some of the people, the man who did the Pulse nightclub, Omar Mateen, for example, were that kind of person, right? They were looking around for a right. cause that was associated with violence and as opposed to some people who are them kind of randomly. Exactly. So, you know, it's hard to say how much of, you know, this guy, we wouldn't call it terrorism if he shot up his boss, right? But you still would have innocent people dead. Um, and so I don't want to attach too much to this particular example. So I would say, you know, one is on gun laws. Um, you know, Kate's done a lot more work on the social media side, and I do think they've made progress, right? Like, I really want to stress this, um, but it shows you kind of, you know, how, what a boulder they're pushing up when it comes to pushing stuff uphill, right? Because if they made progress and it didn't work in this case, what does that say? Um, so to me, you know, that's something where I used to be more optimistic. And now I'm like, well, okay, they're actually doing some of what I told them. I, not that they've listened, but some of what people were suggesting. And, you know, lo and behold, um, you know, a big thing to me is political rhetoric, right? And to me, this is, I, I, I feel both naive saying this and yet, um, yet crazy not to, which is, you know, wouldn't it be nice if politicians drew bright lines between, you know, political discourse and support for violence? And I never thought that was a particularly controversial point. And I would have said 25 years ago, you know, there are politicians I disagree with, but I don't think they're supporting violence. And now I get really upset when I look at people who are, are serious uh, politicians yep. saying things that are, are to me clearly in the border of incitement. So why is it, well, maybe this is more of a, I mean, maybe I know the answer to this, like, but I'll ask it. It's like, why is it that we're like, why, 
when we when we search for blame, and this is something that I've written a bit about, which is like kind of a cognitive science concept. When we search for blame, we go back and we try to figure out like what can we do to remedy this again if it to try to stop this from happening again, right? And it's a very hopeless concept if people can't find somewhere to lay the blame. And typically they like to lay the blame at like the most the largest and most kind of well-funded types of entities, which is one of the reasons I think platforms typically kind of get saddled with this right now. Um, and the government maybe would have been saddled with this before the platforms. Um, but I think that your point is a great one, like, which is like, why are, why are, why are politicians not getting blamed for this? And like, n I will go one step further. I would say that like, not only are they using violent rhetoric, and not drawing a straight, like a like a bright line between like rhetoric and actual calls for incitement to violence. But I would say that they're also in their in the waste of time that they're spending on stupid rhetoric around really like just like I guess I'm just very frustrated around a lot of the stuff that I guess that I'm seeing from politicians lately in which there's just a lot of bloviating they're never going to pass laws they're never going to do anything and there's just all of this waste of time that there's actual things that need to kind of happen <laughs> like conversations about gun control and things like that and we're not having the conversations because no one wants to touch that um depending on their district and I just I don't know I just I think that that's terrible uh, uh, some of this audience may have read the Peter Baker biography of um, of uh, James Baker. Um, and um, I have some criticisms of that book. But one thing that he points out was in Washington in you know 30 years ago, your mark was made by taking on tough problems. Right? You took on tough problems and you made progress on them and people pointed to you and admired you. Right. And you and now it seems to be by taking out rhetorically pure and ideologically pure stands that have no kind of relevance to actual governing or legislation. And if you do something, you know, God forbid you say, hey, let's do immigration reform and I'll make some compromises and you make some compromises. And, you know, some of our supporters won't be happy with those compromises, but overall it'll be better Then you're just hated by everyone and has no chance of success. Right. And I don't quite know what led to that shift where people don't want their government to get things done and admired the publisher use air quotes here but admired the principled stance over actual accomplishment so what um i, I mean we have sorry i just like i that's a great that's a that's a great james baker i forgot about that but yeah thank you the gun element is not novel in the sense that this is not new technology, the ability to, we had a relatively brief period where we had, um, uh, uh, where we had assault weapons ban, but it was pretty brief. Mass shootings have happened at least since the Texas Tower murders in, in the late 60s or early 70s. Um, and there's definitely an accelerant effect associated with Columbine and the internet and people discussing it. It didn't used to be merged with white supremacy the way it is now. And there's a, a kind of merger of the mass shooting phenomenon, which used to just be angry guy, really pissed off the phrase we used for it was going postal. Um, and it didn't seem to have a political valence other than really pissed off. Now it's Pulse, which is anti-gay, uh, Charleston, which is anti-black, Tree of Life is anti-Jewish, uh, El Paso is anti-Hispanic. And this Christchurch is, is anti-Muslim. Christchurch is anti-Muslim. This is anti-Black. It really does seem like the mass shooting phenomenon, which uh, the normal old just kill students thing still happens at Virginia Tech and uh, uh, what's it called in Florida, that still happens. But there does seem to be, and Las Vegas, which is the biggest of all, um, there does seem to be, at least in some subcategory of these mass shootings, a merger with the white supremacist movement. 
What do we know about how that happened? Or is the end so small that we really shouldn't say that it has happened? All we can say is that there's been a, there's been several of them. Um, it's definitely happened. And let me point to two things that I think are, are key. Uh, one is, uh, as this movement moved away from being tied to government and part of legitimate society, it became incredibly decentralized and disorganized. And so, you know, one thing to think about is there aren't really large or significant white supremacist, violent white supremacist groups in the United States and in many other countries, right? We can talk about individual figures, we can talk about networks, we can talk about movements like the Boogaloo, but if you, if you say you know, there's no Al-Qaeda or ISIS type things, um, in contrast to, you know, 40, 50 years ago, we could talk about clan chapters that were hierarchical and organized and had thousands of members. Um, and part of that was social pressure. Um, and a lot of it was an extremely effective and rather ruthless FBI campaign that just shattered these organizations um, and made it very expensive in part due to civil lawsuits to be a member of them if they did a, if, a, if someone did any violence. So you have legal and government pressure and social pressure that weakens groups. Um, and that means kind of anyone can say what the movement's about, right? You know, I think the, you know, Nazi movement today is about, you know, um, chasing poodles in the park, right? And that's as in, you know, effective opinion as someone else's, right? There's no one who can say, here's what our movement believes, here's what our members believe. Um, and the internet, of course, has put this all on steroids. You know, just as it's, if you will, democratized politics, right? Where you have people who you're like, why does that person have any authority to comment on politics, right? They're just, you know, someone kind of writing from their basement. Um, nevertheless, they have a million followers. Um, that, of course, has happened in the white supremacist hate space. Um, so you have a lot of competition um, in this broader fringe space. And so you see every possible combination, right? It's almost a, you know, a kind of uh, bell-shaped curve where you see, you know, uh, some people who are tied to, you know, very strong anti-feminism, linking up with anti-government extremism. Um, a law fair, there was a piece about uh, the Unabomber making a comeback among right-wing extremists, right? There are all these kind of bizarre combinations, and it's in part because there are no regulators, right? There are no groups to organize things, and social media allows anyone to um, put up whatever they want. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's it's tremendous competition. Um, and all, everyone's always trying to kind of grab on allies and bring in new people. And in a way, this is a strength of the movement, right? It's incredibly dynamic and it focuses on new things, but it's also a weakness, right? They, they can't actually get much done, right? They're not able to do, you know, going back to, boy, they've really hit everyone in the last five years, right? The flip side is, yeah, but it hasn't been, you know, a sustained campaign against violence, against one particular group that has fundamentally shaped that group, right? It's been, you know, very diffuse and as a result had less strategic impact, even though it's, you know, it's scary to lots of different people. Yeah, but it is scary to lots of different people. And to your point, which I think is the point, one of the points that you make so well in the book, like you can have racists in Poland and South Africa and New Zealand and Kansas and Buffalo, New York, and you can have them all find each other and all feel like they're not alone. And like, you know, all kind of be cheering each other on in these various ways. And it doesn't, and I kind of made this point, and I, I think I was being very inarticulate when I was trying to make it the last time you were on, but it was like, they all, do they, like, what is the united, like, what is the unifying part of like all of these various people if they're hating on, like, is it just the white supremacy, like, does white supremacy mean that they can hate on everyone? And like, and that is the unifying thing that kind of draws them together in their hate? Well, like but I think, I think there's something else going on here. So I've made this point before on this show, which is that when you put something together, like in lieu of fun, you get how many people are on Crowdcast right now, KK? 128. 128 people. And it's really nice, but it doesn't scale. And if you get 128 people together and you tell them, you know, how much today is we hate Jews and tomorrow is we hate black people and 
Thursday is anti-gay day and you know that's going to excite a lot of people and you really do that for that scales and I think part of the problem that that I've never figured out is why the hate stuff scales so well and the the I think the reason for it is if you're the the stormfront people and you're publishing a physical newspaper and you have to pass it out on the street, it's pretty socially unacceptable to take it. Um, and then to say, hey, wow, this Stormfront shit, I love this. Think I'm gonna copy it myself and pass it out myself. That's pretty socially unacceptable. But if you come to Washington uh, and you sit in your own room at the Brookings Institution and you get together with all the people around the world who love Stormfront in kind of in lieu of fun Stormfront, it's suddenly socially acceptable to do that. And uh, you can pass stuff around, you can do all kinds of things. And I think it, the, the, nat the nature of it enables the transmission in a way that's really hard to do in meat space because 95% of people disapprove of what you're doing. Well, what you're basically saying is you're actually making an argument that they scale down their movement, build their own community in which their norms are, which their norms are different. Yeah, and when so they go into the chat right. room, they type norms. <laughs> but what I'm basic, but what I'm trying to say is kind of like what I guess I'm saying is that they're not negatively defining themselves. Does this make sense, Dan? They're not defining yeah. themselves as being against something. They're defining themselves as being for white supremacy. And therefore, like basically that actually creates that gives them like more of a unifying structure than being against something in like that. Does that I mean, is that kind of I'm is that making a little any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, having said, you know, look, we shouldn't invest too much in the great replacement theory because the ideas are old. One thing that is, you know, I think, very powerful about it is white supremacists have used it to unify lots of very different causes, right? So it's, you know, immigrants are coming was kind of the beginning of this um, to replace us, right? And that's still extremely common theme. Uh, but it's also, you know, black people are having more babies to replace us. Um, it's liberals are encouraging homosexuality so white women don't have babies so we can be replaced. Liberals want abortion so white women don't have children. And, and Jews are bringing all those people. And here. Jews are behind it all. And that's our Jews government are elite. eating the white babies. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an endless... Um, and and rather grim <laughs> um, set of uh, set of teachings, but but they all can kind of come together. And you know, the the more eloquent among them would talk about defense of their people and defense of the white race, and um, and that I do think resonates among lots of people who are looking at you know they would say, look, this is not the America I grew up in, and that's actually a true statement. And in some ways, that's actually a very good thing, right? The America that I grew up in had some real faults and. We've moved in a positive direction in some ways, but they're also looking at what they feel are the negatives, especially if you're a white male and you're seeing a very different world. Yeah. So there's a great question in um, from Bonnie in the audience, um, and she can't come on, so I'm going to read it for her. But I think this is like a nice kind of segue into audience questions, which is, what is the best way to identify these groups in your own local area? Is doxing... And, and then secondarily, which I think these are two very different questions, but then is doxing to their employers an effective curb? And I mean, I can answer what I think the, the answer to the doxing question is, which is like, no, hard no. Uh, but I don't know. What do you think, Dan? Uh, so if you look at something like the Anti-Defamation League or the Southern Poverty Law Center, they'll have whole databases of symbols that people use. And you'll see them, once you become sensitized to this, you'll see people flying these flags, or you'll see bumper stickers, you'll see tattoos, you'll see lots of things that make it not always obvious, but at times people are wearing their colors. And from their point of view, it's almost a secret coat, right? It's like, you know, one Harry Potter fan recognizing another by wearing Gryffindor colors, right? But it's, you know, a much darker version of that. Um, and you can be part of that. Um, I'm with Kate. I, I, I 
I just don't like vigilantism in, of any sort. It's not and, just vigilantism. It, it's like Hobbesian, like, right? Like you just right. go down, like, it's like, if you meet violence with violence, you will just get more violence and it'll just like, it's just a terrible, right. I, the the, I, the, I, the I only thing I, I would say on doxing is I do feel if you find that there's a, a member of law enforcement or someone with very significant public responsibilities who has those links, um, uh, kind of reporting it privately to an employer is, is appropriate. Yeah, I want to say a couple words in defense of doxing. Um, not because I'm I'm in favor of it in general, but because I think the situ the circumstances matter. Um, you know, when the newspapers do it, we call it reporting. Um, and um, and uh, there have been a lot of things that have been found out about the, uh, you know, which we call news uh, by news organizations getting certain documents in which uh, people are doing inappropriate things and reporting them. And so my my bottom line here is it really matters how you're doing it, whether you're quality controlling it, and whether you're uh, and whether the target is a big enough fish to warrant uh, wrecking the person's life. And I do think the standard that Dan just articulated, which is that person exercising control over uh, over other people using the power of the state, uh, I think is a legitimate one. But let me give you another one that I think is legit uh, that involves a colleague of Dan's, uh, Christine Fair, uh, who you know discovered one day that Richard Spencer, the the prominent Nazi, uh, was uh, a member of her gym, uh, and she uh, uh, went. Uh, I think a fair word for it is bananas on the subject on Twitter and got him expelled from the gym. And I don't really have a deep problem with that myself. Um, and I thought Christine, you know, she handled it with her usual uh, uh, calm, uh, 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 even-tempered uh, demeanor, but I, I, I don't really see why, you know, people who work in that gym who may be, you know, uh, minorities or, or people of color or, uh, any of a number of others should have to work in an environment in which they're subjected to Richard Spencer and his uh, whatever he feels like saying on a particular day. So I think the question of doxing is honestly, honestly depends very much on circumstances. And it's, it's like super easy to take a position of principle about it. But then when you you immediately end up in the situation Dan was just in, which is like, well, except when they're law enforcement, and then you would have to add to it, or I would, except when they're Richard Spencer, when it's okay. And I, I do think you end up in a kind of totality of the circumstances kind of test. I mean, I agree with that, but I think, yes. And But this is why I think that basically you have to, if you're going to have a bright line rule and not a totality of the circumstances test, which is obviously not administrable at a scale, at the scale that we're talking about, then I think that the rule has to be no doxing. So to your point about like, so just the other day. But no doxing not applied to journalists. Well, that I was just about to bring this up because the Washington Free Beacon just yesterday, like or two days ago, which is like ostensibly a newspaper or something, um, uh, just doxed, a, had a leaked, a bunch of leaked Instagram, private Instagram posts that a bunch of women in law schools had posted at like Yale Law School had posted in their private thing. And apparently like somebody that was like they had allowed to follow them, had screenshotted them and leaked it to a journalist and the journalists had published these Yale Law School, I mean, maybe they're going to be future senators or something. And so they're getting ahead of it by stopping these abortionists right. from so like, I, getting what, into positions of power. But my point is like, how do you draw those lines? Well, like, what I would say is a law student is not fair game um, as a general matter. Um, now, you know who was a law student once? J.D. Vance. I don't yeah, know. Well, like, I just feel J. like it's... J.D. Vance today, his activity as a law student is totally fine. It's totally fair game. But when he was a law student, he was a law student. What and about Tiffany Trump when she was a law student just a couple of years totally ago? Totally not fair game, okay. I think. 
even I when think, she was the daughter of the president of the United States while she you, was a law student? You know what? I think you get to ha like she didn't choose that. And I think probably a lot of people didn't report stuff about Tiffany Trump that not that I know of anything that. But but, I, you know, look, if she went she was a law student at Georgetown. If you had paparazzi her, I'm sure there were things that you could have been an asshole and found out. I'm not saying that with any knowledge. I'm just like, that's the nature of like what that kind of like life is, right? Somebody could go to every party she was at and snap pictures. Um, it's an asshole thing to do. It, uh, there's no legitimate public interest in that. On the other hand, if you're a law student who's about to go clerk for a Supreme, uh, for a appellate court judge of prominence and you have a history of white supremacy, I think that is a legitimate matter of news that, you know, you know, Kate Klonick, who's about to go uh, clerk on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, her judge accepted her as a uh, as a clerk, knowing that she had this history of posting white supremacist stuff. This is all I'm making it all up. But, um, you know, like, I think that's a legitimate story and the judge should be answerable for it and the, the individual should be answerable for it. Dan? Uh, so I'm, I've kind of wrestled with this question in one of my classes. We, we wrestle with this a lot. Um, I tend to see... Um, I tend to be very cautious of this because I think it can easily become a, you know, here's people I don't like, let's screw them. And it's so easy to slip into that. So to Ben's point on journalism, I would say, you know, yes, but the whole point is I can't just say to the Washington Post, you know, Ben Wittes is a child molester, print it. And some reporter is going to run with it, right? They would verify it. They would check out different sources. And the whole point of a reputable journalist is they do that. Right. And so to, you know, I think the journalist craft, if you will, the whole point is that it's not simply hitting forward on any email they receive. Right. And that to me is quite different than than doxing. And the problem with doxing is I'm sure there are individual doxers who actually have you know, legitimate code of ethics. Um, but there's just no way to verify that. There's no way to hold them accountable the way we can say, I'm not going to read the Washington Post because it doesn't have a code of ethics. Um, the way there are some places, frankly, I don't read because I feel they they don't uphold reportorial uh, standards. Um, and then on the public interest point, I would agree, actually. Usually, though, again, I would favor leaking it to a journalist, uh, having him or her kind of vet the information and, and collate it and have more, more reach. But there is a question of at what point does this become immediately in the broader public interest. And I would have that be pretty high in terms of, you know, what sort of person uh, that would be. But I actually, having said that, I do include local police officers just because, you know, that person has tremendous discretion in terms of what to investigate and what to investigate and how to treat local people. And, you know, the last thing we want is to have this, our, our system of justice uh, called into question. So on the political side and the social kind of stature side, I tend to want someone fairly high up before we even think about these issues. But on the law enforcement side, I'm I'm willing to go much lower. But even then, I, I would be much more inclined to simply write, have the person write to their boss rather than splash it over the newspaper. Yeah. I mean, to Ben's point about public interest, I just think that that's a slippery slope. Like 50% of the country doesn't believe in abortion. And so right now, if we tip into a world in which becoming an abort, being pro-choice becomes a matter of public interest, then there's a lot of people who become hazard for, for doxing and whatever. But that being said, I am trying, I swear to God, I'm not Alicing Alice. Alice, I cannot unmute your video or unmute. <gasps> there you are. Hi. Okay. Can you um, unmute yourself, Alice? Oh shit! Oh, so okay. so expel well, to, Alice and then bring her back. Bring you back, okay? Um, and Richard, hopefully I can bring. I also can't bring on Richard. What's going on? Um, Richard. See, this is what happens when I don't captain the show. <laughs> uh, that's not true. Um, no, it's really on. not. Um, but there is, uh, this happens all the time. Um, let me just try to bring in Alice again, but maybe, and in the meantime, I'm gonna have to dismiss Richard and 
uh, and bring him back. But hopefully this happen works and we can get Alice back on. Up oh, there's Alice. No, god damn it. Oh my god. Why? Okay, Alice, here's what you're gonna do. Go up to the top of your screen and click your mic button. Uh, oh no, Richard is settings. Richard is unmuted now. So Richard, okay, you so, talk. So click no. your sound settings and and it'll throw you out and bring you back in. I want I want someone to do it in semaphore. That's just always been my dream. But yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, we can't see you, but we can hear you. So go ahead and ask your question. So you can hear this. We yes. can. Hello. Oh, good. Okay. Um, so are are there efforts um, that you know of to internationalize white supremacy? That is to forge a sense of solidarity among white supremacists throughout the world. And I'm thinking about something along the lines of Bannon's efforts to forge a global or European coalition of reactionaries. Uh, so definitely. And, you know, David Duke was a very popular speaker in a number of countries in kind of what we used to call Eastern Europe and also Russia. Uh, and so we do see individuals who have been trying to do this um, in Europe being Europe, you see a lot of individuals crossing borders. Um, and you definitely see, you know, often this is in the English speaking world, um, individuals who are, you know, they would redefine themselves as not as Americans, but as as whites, right? So in their view, they have a transnational identity of white civilization and white blood. And therefore, you know, when a white is attacked in Canada or white is attacked in Australia, they feel it's an attack on their community, even if it's in a different country. Um, so we definitely see individuals doing this. And then you see, you know, kind of trollish countries like Russia have tried to play this up and often, you know, treating, we've seen Russian media treat David Duke as like an actual voice of something, right? As if this was a person you get a legitimate comment on. So, um, you know, yes, the movement certainly wants to do this. Um, the problem again, though, is it's a very divided movement. So some individuals are doing it to gain prominence, but it's not as if there is a broad coherent organization that is selectively putting forth people and uh, pushing them, you know, pushing out their ideas. Yeah. All right. I, go ahead, Ben. Oh, sorry. No, no. You go ahead. I'm, I'm I don't waiting think, for Alice to come back. I don't know if she's going to come back, but we will see. Um, I'm going to close this out. I'm going to read her questions because they're both good and they both got a lot of upvotes. And I'm going to bring on Mateo to ask the last question. Um, so um, Alice asked, uh, and this is kind of similar to Richard's point, do the groups that you cover in your book agree on the definition of whiteness is her first question. Um, and I'm kind of, a, I'm super interested in that as well. And then how much has been done at the federal level? Um, it seems like the Biden administration is interested in prosecuting hate crimes, but that is far from a guarantee. Uh, so interested in your thoughts on that, Dan. Oh. Sure. So in terms of what whiteness is, you know, again, I would stress the weakness of the groups themselves, right? So there's no one who can enforce borders. And, you know, if you look, you know, not to go too far back in history, right, but it used to be a lot of what these white supremacist groups really railed against were white Catholics coming from countries like Italy, right? And so, you and know, Germany. But, and Germany, right? These are now right, white people. The, the anti-beer laws were all about anti-German sentiment in in Ohio. And and we do see kind of you know Protestant attacks on Catholic areas in a number of um, kind of you know in the you know Pennsylvania area, for example, in Ohio area. And so, who whites are has has grown. And, you know, and it encouraged, you know, the kind of Catholic Protestant divide has been transcended as just one very important example. But that was, you know, throughout U.S. history and in other countries uh, that mattered a lot. But again, I would just stress no one agrees because there's no one who can enforce borders. Right. You know, a, a few things I would say, though, obviously blacks are out. Um, Latinos are out, but there's kind of the eternal question of how many generations that lasts. Um, Jews are never white, no matter where they're from. Um, and so there are some people who are always on the outs, but where to draw the lines is a question mark. Um, go ahead. Ben. Yeah, I just want to add to this. I think there are a few definitional parameters that Dan just alluded to. Uh, so the original conception of whiteness was really about white Protestant Scott. Anglo-Saxon. Well, but not Irish, 
right? So well, that's because uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant, yeah. And then it was it included it included Scandinavian non you know non-Catholics and some German non-Catholics, but not German Catholics, right? And so the original Ohio problem was Bavarians who showed up and you know had very different uh, uh, cultural milieus. Um, uh, then it became an anti-Southern European thing, you know, Italians, Greeks, and importantly, Eastern Europeans, anti-Polish, anti, you know, anti-Russian, Czech. Um, uh, eventually, this all rounds to zero. And I think at the end, even the anti-Latino thing, you know, Nick Fuentes, right, is, um, his last right. name is Fuentes. Enrique um, Cario, right? I mean, right. Like, <laughs> um, you know, the, um, the, the Latino-Hispanic relationship here is, I think, really about how dark the skin of the, uh, of the Hispanic is, right? And, and whether they're, um, you know, um, Spanish or like Mexican indigenous and like that kind of thing. Right. No, exactly. I think that that's right. Eventually there's two bright red lines, which is black and dark people and Jews. And they're for very different reasons. Um, and, but they're the, they're the immutable ones whose whiteness, at least for the white supremacists, if not for the society, um, because Jewish acceptance in society is radically different than it was 70 years ago. But, you know, like 70 years ago, Italians weren't white. And now they are. And that is, you know, for the white supremacists, that change doesn't happen with, with there's no change that happens with blacks and Jews and with people whose skin is, is quite dark. Matteo, great to see you. Good to see you. Um, two questions. Do you have a preference? Um, I think just you're the one that's top voted up. All right. Uh, so my question is whether the two separate goals we were you guys were talking a, lot, a little bit more in the beginning of mitigating the spread of just hateful belief systems amongst the population, um, distinct from the goal of preventing radicalization amongst people who actually might do violence. Uh, I'm wondering if those two goals are compatible uh, and incompatible in terms of what policies one might pursue in order to follow them. I'm thinking about this in particular in terms of like platform policy, uh, but as a general matter, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, let me start, but I'd, I'd like Kate to have the last word on this. Um, so when we talk about a relatively small number of violent individuals, um, that can be, you know, a front and center law enforcement task. Uh, they can be identified, uh, dangerous ones can be monitored. Um, and if they're, you know, going towards illegal behavior, there can be arrests, right? And sometimes it can be an actual arrest with criminal charges. Sometimes it could be a knock on the door saying, hey, just so you know, we've been seeing some disturbing stuff and maybe you want to stop it, right? And that can go a long way and that discretion, I think, is very important. Um, when you get to the broader societal issues, one, I'm not sure I have any good ideas, right? I've, I've given a few thoughts at this hour, but it's just a mess. And, you know, calling for politicians to be more responsible, uh, calling for people not to, you know, gain followers and make money when it's they're clearly gaining followers and making money by by sowing hate, you know, isn't actually to me that realistic a recommendation as much as I would like to see people be more responsible. Um, you know, it's a little like, you know, telling teenagers, you know, don't go out partying and drinking because it's dangerous, right? It's a true statement, but not going to get you very far. Um, and so I do see that these are very different problems, but they overlap because the actions of kind of the broader community, you know, not necessarily the majority, but even the broader community have a big impact on the fringe. 
And that's really important as we're trying to solve this problem. We are gonna leave it there. Dan Byman, yeah. you're a great American. Kate this is the book. Yeah. Spreading Meat, the global rise of white supremacist terrorism. Look for it tomorrow on so, the Today Show. So this, is, this is complicated <laughs> people, but don't spread hate, but do spread spreading hate. Okay. Good, that's, good work. That's good a work, subtle friend. one. I, I'm pretty sure most of you can get it. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be taken out of context on Twitter by somebody, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we will be back Wednesday. It's going to be an awesome day, people, because we are playing uh, Where's, Where's the Lie the with Mateo, who was nominated uh, by, uh, uh, by Paula, Paula uh, as the next... Um, uh, the next contestant on Audience Where's the Lie. That'll be 46 hours and 59 minutes from now. And until then, Dan Byman. Thank you, everyone. It's been great. All right. Bye. <laughs>